talk about living out the gospel, and I'll give you a name to start off with. How many know who Tom Brady is? Anybody know who Tom Brady is? Yeah, I think that's probably a... And uh, he is considered a, uh, a, the goat of uh, NFL football. You know what goat is? Somebody, some church tweeted out that their pastor was the goat. <laughs> you shouldn't tweet that. Uh, goat means greatest of all time. So they were, they were complimenting their pastor, but it didn't come across that way to some. But uh, Tom Brady is the goat of the NFL, greatest of all time. Found a couple quotes and comments about him that I thought were interesting and worth sharing. Mark Schlereth plays for the NFL, played in the NFL for 12 seasons and was asked on a sports show, how remarkable is Tom Brady's run? His response, it's incredible. Brady is not sated by success. He's not satisfied with it. Uh, I think that's the most impressive thing to me, to continue to prepare, to continue to grind. Brady's quote is, if you want to beat me, you better be ready to lose your life because I've already given up mine. Brady's former backup quarterback said the thing I learned most from Tom Brady is playing quarterback is not a job, it's a lifestyle. And you gotta be willing to commit your life to it and to be able to commit your life to playing the game the way he has played it and to have that much passion for it without ever being sated by it. He wakes up and it's all about what am I going to do today to be the best quarterback I can be for this organization. That means diet, that means exercise, that means hydration. And Sundays aren't the problem. Monday through Saturday, that's the problem. You get to a point somewhere in your career, I don't want to prepare anymore. If I could just show up on Sundays, that would be great. But I don't want to go through the grind, the grind of preparing to get to Sunday. He still eats the grind for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's one of the most amazing things I have ever witnessed. And so we've all seen these athletes who excel, these athletes who excel at what they do. And, and really, when you look at these athletes, it's because their sport becomes a lifestyle to them. It, it, it actually ends up defining them. And so we've heard of other athletes, of Olympic gold medalists who, you know, what do they do? They eat, sleep, and live, whatever it is they are involved in. That is just the re- reality of their life. And it's not just athletes, it's musicians and magicians and actors and actresses who do crazy things to train for roles. That's just their life. And so what I, what I want to take this this morning is when you think about those kinds of people in the world, for us as Christians, really, the gospel should be our lifestyle. The gospel should be the thing that defines, really, us. I mean, Christ should define us, but the gospel should be a lifestyle. We should be identified by the things that make up the gospel. There are two realities I always bring up, and they they sound very similar. And how are they maybe different this morning? Reality number one is we need to live out the gospel. We always talk about living out the gospel. And, and this would be really more general in its application, in its understanding of living out things like mercy and grace and forgiveness and righteousness and justice and hope and joy. And so many of those things in the last series, we talked about pursuing the heart of God. So many of those things are the things that are the, the, the it's living out the gospel when we pursue the heart of God. And so that's that, re- that reality of living out the gospel. There's this other reality. It's called working out our salvation. And what's the difference between the two? This would be, tend to be more specific. It's taking the gospel and then it's fleshing out the gospel within the context of our specific relationships, our circumstances, and our personal life. It's taking that grace and that forgiveness and that mercy and that compassion and that justice and that hope 
into the adversity of life, into the difficult relationships we have, into our homes, into our, into our marriages, into our neighborhoods, wherever we go. This morning as we aim for communion, here's what I want us to do. To do. I want us to consider what does it mean to live out the gospel and, and what can communion visual, help us visualize about the gospel. We're going to look at communion today as, as a visual way to see the gospel that we have to live out. Let's read the, the key text here. And then we'll get a big idea. For I received, Paul writes, from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, the Lord's death till he comes. Here's our big idea. Communion is a visual representation of the gospel I am called to live out. And we're going to see five things today in communion, and we're going to look at them kind of briefly because we want to have time to celebrate communion at the end. But communion is a visual representation of the gospel that we are called to live out. And we can look at communion and the elements and what transpires here and learn five things. And so let us just jump in. Let's just jump in as we think about what, what is happening in communion, what of, of significance is taking place, and what does it mean to live out. And what if communion became a regular reminder, not for merely five minutes every periodic Sunday morning, but every minute of every single day, a reminder of the gospel we are called to live out. So here's the first thing we need to see. We need to visualize, really, our need for community. We need to visualize our need for community. When we take community, there is this communion, there is a sense of community that is going on. Paul says, when you come together. Now this is actually backing up uh, a few verses and we'll get there in a minute. But I want you to think about this idea of how communion is all about community. Now, let's start with the context here. Paul says uh, this, for I also received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So understand Paul is putting in writing what he already told them. He already told them to practice orally. You need to practice communion. He explained this to them orally. Now he's putting it in a letter. And in this process, we're getting the instruction on communion as well. But why did he put it in a letter? He put it in a letter because when it came to communion, they were really, they were, there was some gross misconduct in their communion. He was really addressing a problem that existed within the Corinthian church, a very serious problem that existed. L listen to what it says here, going back a few verses. Verse 17, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, there's a come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. Can you imagine if you got together and it was worse that you got together and not better? That's not a good, a good uh, thing. When you come together, verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, here's the context of what's going on. And back in those days, house churches were big. They met in people's homes. Um, they probably met corporately in other areas too. But one thing that was an integral part of their worship was, was food. They ate. They ate. There, were, there was what they called the agape meal. Later, it became known as the love feast. And so whenever they got together, they ate. They ate together. And what they did was they 
celebrated communion at the end of the meal, much like the Passover meal when Jesus and the disciples ate a meal and then celebrated communion at the end. And that is what had transpired here. But what had transpired that each family would come with their own meal and some would pig out and some would gorge themselves and uh, some would get drunk and others would go home starving because they didn't have as much to bring. And so Paul calls them out on that. Paul calls them out because communion is supposed to be a time not, o- not only of communion with God, but of community with the body. We're, 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 we're a body, and communion is, in some sense, is all about showcasing or putting a spotlight on the body of Christ, the church. Now look at this. This is how serious it was. In verse 29, Paul talks about their discipline. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When he says discerning the body, he's not talking about the body of Jesus. He's talking about the body of Christ, the church. These, they were getting together and they weren't discerning. They were part of a greater community. And they, they were totally missing the whole community aspect in this and how they needed to be one and celebrate communion in that way. In fact, the sin was so grave and so serious. Look what it says in verse 30. I'll tell you what this means. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, now what does Paul mean by that when he said that some were weak and ill and some died? What did he mean by that? Well, he meant this. Some were weak and ill and some died. That's how serious the sin was. I mean, people literally died. Here's, here's kind of what it would look like. Let's say that um, Ken and Wayne are having a conversation and they're saying, did you hear what happened to Dan last week after communion? And, and, and Ken's like, no, what happened? He had a heart attack and died. <laughs> they're like, what? Yeah, well, you know, he brought all that food in. He picked out on all that food. He got himself drunk. And he had a heart attack and died. I mean, literally, that was kind of the context of what was going on. And so, thank you for being the illustration today, Dan. But <laughs> I had to flip a coin to see who would be the villain in that. But that's really what was going on. It was so serious. And I've read that before and thought, now, what does it really mean? But now it's what it really means. People got sick and died. And if you carry on and have behavior like that, it can kill you if you don't take care of yourself. And God let that happen to get their attention and say, hey, this is really serious what's going on here. Now, the, the problem was is they, were, they failed to examine and check their hearts. And if they had just examined themselves, God would have said, hey, I don't like the way you're doing communion. You need to not do it. Knock that off. But they weren't even examining themselves, so they didn't even see the most blatant of sins. And so Paul writes this in a letter and gets there attention so that's what we see is going on here the thing is to live out the gospel it requires community now there's two aspects to this living out the the gospel kind of thing we need to think about there is the nature of finding salvation that's personal when you come into a relationship with jesus christ that is a personal decision you make between you and god your parents can't make it for you your grandparents can't make it for you your husband or wife can't make it for you your kids can't make it for you you know sure there are some kids that just pray i wish my mom and dad would get saved but um the reality is that's a personal decision but the reality is living out the gospel living out our salvation that takes community because the bible says when we are saved we're put into the church you know why we go to church because we are the church that's why we go to church and we go to church because when we're saved, we become an arm or a knee or an eye or a nose or some other body part. And to function as our body part, we need to be in the body. We need to have a body we're a part of where we work together to proclaim the gospel 
and live out the gospel. So that's the simple reality here. So just understand this. Our first truth then is this. When we take communion, we are to visualize the reason that we are together and our need for community. Community is a vital part of communion, okay? Here's a look at our second truth. Here's our second thing we want to visualize in communion. The reality of our brokenness. We want to visualize the reality of our broken. When you look at that bread, that bread that is broken that we partake of, it speaks to the reality of the brokenness, really, that is so pervasive in this world. This is my body, which is broken for you. That's how the King James quotes it. Now, this is a fascinating point to me because the one thing that we're most ashamed of, that we most want to hide, is our brokenness. That's the part of us. Don't let anybody see my brokenness. Don't. Don't let anybody see my messed up, painful, hurting parts. What do I mean by brokenness? I mean the reality that after Adam and Eve sinned, after they ate the forbidden fruit, after the fall, that, that, that threw the whole world into, under a curse and the whole world was broken. Our climate is, we have climate change, why? Because the climate is broken, the world is broken. That's why there's climate change. That because you live in Michigan. But yeah, there's climate change because of the brokenness and there's all kinds of other, it impacts our relationships and our circumstances and our health. So many other ways it impacts us. This broken world we live in. Now I'm not watering down our sin by saying we're broken. No, we're sinful and our brokenness is a result of our disobedient our sinful nature that we are born with so here's the thing two two angles on this jesus invites us into his story of brokenness and suffering think about the context again verse 23 and 24 the lord jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you what is jesus doing here jesus is in that upper room he's inviting those 12 disciples hey I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to enter a really dark time of suffering and I'm inviting you into my darkness, into the darkness of my soul, into the darkness of this moment. When he goes out, they leave here, they go out into the, the garden, right? He goes off to pray and he takes Peter and James and John and says, come pray with me. And what's he doing? He's inviting Peter and James and John into his brokenness, into the painful, sorrowful moment that is engulfing his life. And in the same way, when we take communion, God is inviting us into his passion, catch this, for a lost world. Think about it. Why, what do we call the week leading up to the crucifixion of Christ? It's the passion week. It's his passion. And when we take communion, we look at the brokenness of this world and we're to visualize the brokenness of the world and be as passionate about that brokenness in other people's lives as Jesus Christ is. The passion that drove him to the cross. He wants us to join him, to feel the same pain that he feels. Look at verse 27. There's another powerful truth being identified and expressed through communion. Verse 20 tells us we are to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here's the thing. All the brokenness that we are so ashamed of, the brokenness that Christ experienced on the cross and the brokenness we're ashamed of, that's often how the gospel is disseminated through the brokenness of Christ and our brokenness, and really what is Christ's brokenness but our brokenness. He took our brokenness on himself, his sin. He took our sin on himself. 
And there's this great reality here. The height of our significance is sometimes found in the depth of our brokenness. What does that mean? That means the most significant thing any of us can do in this room is to lead someone into a personal relationship with Christ. To, to, to lead someone to the communion table and tell them, hey, you can have communion too. The most significant thing you can do is, is alter someone's eternity. And, uh, and, uh, and sometimes, oftentimes, how do we do that? Through sharing our own brokenness and our own pain and our own struggles and what did Christ do in my life and how did Christ, how did, how did Christ transform me? People think there's no hope and you say, hey, you gotta look at my life. If there's hope for me, there's hope for anyone. That's the reality. Jesus then invites us into his own story of brokenness and suffering. But at the same time, what's going on in communion? Jesus enters into our own story of brokenness and suffering. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Why was he broken? He was broken for us and he was broken by us. Our sins put him on the cross. You remember when Jesus, shortly after Jesus was born and the wise men, you know, went and saw Jesus and King Herod and then they skirted out of town. And King Herod, so threatened by Jesus, what did King Herod do? King Herod went through and what did he, he killed all the baby boys, all the baby boys two years and under. So threatened by the potential rulership of Jesus Christ that he killed all the baby boys. Someone raised an interesting question. I read it this week. It was fascinating. It's like, so God sent an angel to, to uh, Mary and Joseph and said, hey, get Jesus out of town. King Herod's killing all the baby boys. And somebody said, why didn't God send an angel to all the other moms and dads and tell them, hey, get your babies out of town? That's the question we always ask, right? We ask it all the time. Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much pain? Why doesn't God intervene more often? Here's the thing. So Jesus, what? Did Jesus escape death? Yeah, he did for about 32 years, 31 years, 33, whatever. But eventually, Jesus, there was another ruling class threatened by him who put him on a cross and killed him. And when they crucified him and when he hung on that cross, you know what he was able to do? He was able to go back and to identify with all the moms and dads from 30 years earlier as they suffered at the loss of their child. And he can identify with you and me today when we suffer. He entered into our own story of brokenness and suffering. He knows what our pain feels like. He knows the hurt we live with every day because he went to the cross. And so Jesus didn't spare all those moms and dads 30 years earlier, but he did spare the one who could identify and bring hope and healing to every single person. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his wounds we are healed. He was broken. He was broken. And you know, the Bible says not a bone of his body was broken. But I can tell you something, I've never had a broken bone in my life, but I've been broken. Sometimes we are crushed and we are broken in this world. So when we take communion, we are to visualize the reality of the brokenness that defined Jesus on the cross as well as the state of this lost world. Number three, we need to visualize number three. We need to visualize the sustaining nature of the gospel. It says that when he was betrayed, took bread. So let's move from the brokenness of the bread to the bread itself and let's think about this a minute and think about the reality that the gospel doesn't just save us, the gospel actually sustains us. And we sang that in that last song today, how God sustains us. 
I want us to see this thought developed here, though. I want us to see the sustaining nature of the gospel. Look at this from three, three angles. There is the bread of life, first of all. So Jesus Christ um, is identified as the bread of life. We think about communion, right? Well, in John chapter 6, Jesus is identified as the bread of life, and he gives one of his most powerful sermons, one of his more famous sermons. It's one he fed the, he had fed the 5,000 the day before, well, actually more like 20,000, with all the children and mothers and families present. There were probably 15, 20, 25,000 people there, and Jesus feeds them all with the fishes and loaves. The next day, all the people not all of them, but a large number of them hunt Jesus down and like, hey, we want to make you king. You feed us well. And so Jesus gives this sermon. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Finally, when many of his disciples, not the 12, but many of his other followers heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And at this point, a lot of people stopped following Jesus. I mean, his words sounded pretty crazy. We have to eat your body and we have to drink your, your blood. That's, man... And we understand that today in the context of the gospel, so it's a little easier to digest, no pun intended. But anyway, here's the reality. We see in that, that, that sense the eternal life there, right? Jesus is eternal life, the bread of life, and he saves us, but he also sustains us. There's this idea of the sustaining nature, that the gospel sustains us, the word of God sustains us. We need to feed on the word of God continually over and over now when we say that that the we feed on the word and it sustains us we're not talking about literally a lot of the the catholics have a belief called transubstantiation where the 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 blood and the bread is the actual body becomes the actual body of christ and that is just not that's just not scriptural can't go into all the things of that this morning other than just to say communion is a symbolic it's, sim- it's, symbol- it's symbolic of his bread. It's symbolic of his blood. And we need to look at it and visualize how it sustains us. So there's this idea of the bread of life. But then the word of God, think about this, the word of God then is, we often hear the word of God in scripture, right? We read the word of God this, the word of God that. We immediately think of one thing, the Bible. But sometimes the word of God, when we read it in scripture, doesn't necessarily mean the Bible. For instance, the law was the word of God, just as the gospel can be the word of God. I'll give you two examples of where you can see this idea, and if you understand the word with the gospel, it makes a little more sense. Husbands, love your wives, it says in Ephesians 5, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or such thing that she may be holy and without blemish. Now what does that even mean? I think it's one of those drive-by verses. We read it, we just kind of drive on by. It's like, I don't really totally get all of that. Love your wife like Christ loved the church and so wash her with the word. What would that be? Does that mean I quote scripture to her to get her life together and (laughs) clean her up, you know? I need to quote you some scripture, honey. I don't think that's right. I mean, why couldn't she do that to me, you know? 
So what does it really mean? Well, if you think about the context here of this not just being the word, what about it's the gospel? How did God save us and wash us and cleanse us with the gospel? So the word here really is probably speaking more directly of the gospel. In fact, I think you can maybe read it. No, I don't have it on the screen, but you can read it in that context that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the gospel. And so the point of this is take the gospel. Use the gospel to empower your spouse. Use the gospel to encourage her. Don't quote scripture to correct her. <laughs> if you see the difference there, there is a difference there. Remind her who she is in Christ. Remind her what Christ has done for her. Empower and encourage and lift her up, build up her life with the gospel. Don't quote scripture to correct her. Um, here's another one. Ephesians chapter 6, and Jesus is talking about the spiritual battle we're in with Satan every day. And here's what he says. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What's the word of God there? Well, the sword of the Spirit, word of God. Of course, that's, that's scripture. And I'm not saying that it can't be. There's a traditional thing here. I think I've probably shared this idea before. Remember, you ever heard of this before? You need to memorize scripture so you can recall it when you're in a spiritual battle and quote it back to the enemy. That's how you fight back, right? Now, I'm not saying that's totally untrue and that that, that doesn't work. But what if we understood here, again, in the context of it all, it kind of fits in a little better, that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is the gospel. That, how about that understanding? To, to think about this in the sense that I fight back with the gospel. The, the gospel is our greatest weapon and offense against the schemes of the devil. Instead of struggling to find the right verse at the right moment and feeling guilty when I can't find the right verse to encourage myself and fight back, what if I fight back with the gospel? What if I fight back with the one who fights for me and the one who will silence my enemy? You see, sometimes the Word of God represents the gospel. So, that takes us to one last picture here in this, and that's the blood of Christ. We take the elements here, we look at the, we look at the bread, it sustains us, how the gospel sustains us and nourishes us, but how about the blood of Christ? And It also sustains us and nourishes us. The gospel represents, of course, life, but it represents our purity and our righteousness and our holiness. We understand we're washed in the blood of Christ. We're saved by the blood of Christ. Look at Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. See, so understand that before you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, there was a curtain there. And, and when Christ died on the cross, that curtain was ripped top to bottom. And we were given entrance into the most holy, into the throne of grace. Freely, anytime we want to go in, we can. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. It is our confidence, but it, it is our purity. It, it's what makes us whole and, and makes us righteous and holy. At the same time, when we are in that spiritual battle with the enemy and we fight back with the gospel, we can fight back and we can say, no, I am holy, I am pure, I am righteous, no matter what you say about me. In fact, Romans 8, Jesus, uh, uh, Paul raises the, the, the so very rhetorical question here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. When the enemy comes and wants to throw stuff in your face and attack you and tell you how worthless you are, how unworthy you are, no, you can stand on the gospel. 
Stand on the gospel, stand strong, and fight back. Just as the blood of Jesus is pure, so are we. In fact, think about your life this way, that it's like you got a spiritual blood transfusion and you have pure blood now. That's what happened when you received Christ as your Savior. That means, then, and I didn't put it on the screen, that means that when we take communion, we are to visualize the gospel. It not only saves us, but that also sustains us. Uh, Number four, the gospel that needs to be proclaimed There is a gospel. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The reality is the gospel is a good news that everyone needs to hear and communion is a visual reminder of a gospel that needs to be proclaimed over and over and over and over again. Both verbally and through our life. It is a satisfying and sustaining meal and we need need to invite other people to come celebrate communion with us. We simply do. Um, Who do you know? that needs the bread of life? Who do we all know that needs the bread of life? And I touched on that earlier, so that's all I'll say at this point. But there is a gospel that needs to be proclaimed and we see that in the context of communion. And finally, number five, the last visualization here is the attitudes that shape a life. And when we take communion, there are two attitudes, two profound attitudes that will shape our life and we see them in the context of communion, in, in the context of communion. Let a person examine himself and do this in remembrance of me. And we're talking here about two different attitudes and they even, they even uh, intersect. They really intersect. Let's look at them through, the, 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 through our heart this morning. Consider this. There is the humble heart that examines itself. There is the humble heart that examines itself and that was the problem for the Corinthians is that they were not examining themselves at all. If they had been, as I said, God would have pointed out where they had gone wrong. But in verse 28, Paul says this. Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And examine in this context means to test, examine, prove, scrutinize to see whether a man or woman be genuine or not and so just need to examine just examine your heart am i in a genuine place or am i not i think there could be some real confusion here in these verses you read them in the king james and there's you know king james uses the word the damnation it's like so if i take communion wrong am i going to go to hell is that what it's saying sometimes the king james doesn't it gets a little confusing in its terminology what is really being said here when it talks about examining our life. What does that mean to examine ourselves? I, I dug into that a little bit and I can't go too deep here, but I can tell you this, that the idea Paul has here is that we need to take communion in a, in a reverential way. When it says unworthily, we're always worthy to take communion because of the blood of Christ if we're saved. But we can take communion very irreverentially with a lot of irreverence. We can give it disrespect. I remember growing up, and I don't know, this might have been my own thoughts, but growing up, I remember growing up with this thought that, well, if it's communion time and there's the sin in your life that you're aware of, you need to let the elements pass on by because you're not worthy to take communion, you know, and, and you should let them pass on by. And I thought about that a lot this week, and I don't think that's anything close to what Paul is saying here as far as letting the elements pass on by. If we have a sin in our life that we know is evident, something we struggle with, does that mean we can't take communion? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think all the more we need to, with a humble and genuine heart, take communion and be grateful 
give thanks to a God that accepts us, even in our struggle with sin, that, 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 that is greater than our sin, that will empower us to defeat our sin. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. The issue for the Corinthians here is that they, they just weren't in any way listening to God. Their misconduct was so great, there's no way they could have been listening to God. We need to be listening to God. We need to be honest with God. If there's a sin in our life, be honest. Say, I'm struggling with this, Lord. Will you help me defeat this sin? But just because there's a sin in our life doesn't mean we pass the elements by. To examine our heart is to be real with God, to be honest with God. Is there ever a time then to not take communion? Well, two times you, you probably would want to let the elements pass by if you're not saved. Because communion is a time for believers to celebrate their salvation. And the second time you would let the elements pass by is if you're, you're saved and there is a sin in your life and you just don't care. I know, God, what you say, but I don't care. I don't care at all what you say about that. I'm going to do it. Then you should let the elements pass by. Here's the irony of that, okay? If the elements come to you and you don't care what God says, you should let them pass by. Well, if you don't care what God says, you're not going to care what God says about communion. You're not going to care. You're going to be worried more about what people think of you if you don't take communion and partake of it. It's all about a genuine, humble heart. And we all struggle with sin. And if there's a known sin in our life we can't get past, I mean, yeah, if you feel in your heart like you should let the elements pass, that's between you and God. But I would take the elements and say, Lord, empower me, sustain me, give me the strength to win this battle because I really want what you want. There is the humble heart. The humble heart that examines itself. And then there is the grateful heart that expresses itself. The grateful heart that expresses itself. Do this in remembrance of me. We take communion and as we do, we do it in remembrance of Christ. We take communion in remembrance of Christ who is the head of our body, the source of our community. We take communion in remembrance of Christ, thankful that he is the one who sustains us with his word, with the gospel. He is the vine. We are the branches. He nourishes us he fills us. He makes us holy and righteous. We take communion and give thanks for the one who was broken for us and broken with us, joined us in our brokenness. In fact, think about this attitude of thankfulness and the brokenness of Christ. Think about this stunning part of the, of the story here when you think about it. Um, it's not on the screen, but listen to what it says in verse 23 and 24. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Think about the reality there. Christ is approaching the cross. It's impending. It's moments away. And you know what? He's giving thanks. He's giving thanks for the bread, which represents his body, which represents his brokenness, which represents his suffering, which means we can give thanks in our adversity, in our struggle, in our pain. And we do, in communion, we give thanks that he joined us in our brokenness and we give thanks that he will see us through our suffering today. And taking communion with thankfulness then never lets the elements simply pass by us, but engages them with gratitude for a Savior that is greater than our sin and has made us pure and holy despite even our outward behaviors and with a reverential worship. So, 
as we take communion then we are to visualize the gospel that makes us ever and always worthy deserves our deepest introspection and summons our greatest thanks so i'm going to ask ken and wayne to come down you want to come down too dad you can you can come down and pray for us in a moment i'm going to ask them to come down as i just walk through what we're talking about here today so when we take communion, we're to visualize. We're to look at the bread here and we're to visualize how much we need each other. Like this bread has all these different ingredients to make it bread. We're all the different ingredients that make up the body of Christ. We need each other to be the body of Christ. And, and then we see here in this bread, what we, we visualize the brokenness. We visualize the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of ourselves, that we are broken time and time and time Again, what is brokenness? When I say that word brokenness, what does brokenness mean to you? Can you give me one word when you think of the brokenness of the world? What's just one word that defines brokenness in the word? What? Pain. Incomplete. Separation. These are good. I didn't think of these. Sin. Grief. sadness keep shouting them out failure. failure from poverty and sickness and disease and destruction and dysfunction and hate and anger injustice and fear and doubt hopelessness grief sorrow hurt pain darkness death defeat depression Christ came and his body was broken for a broken world and we visualize that when you take communion today and, 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 and just take what you have and think about how that was broken. The bread was broken. And it symbolizes the brokenness of Christ and the brokenness of us and how he joined us in our brokenness. And also, we look at this, we see the, the meal that sustains us and satisfies us and nourishes us. You see, this meal is the answer to my brokenness, to my fear and my pain and my hopelessness and my doubt and my struggles and my insecurities and my failures and my sin and my enemy. This is the answer. This meal, the gospel, it silences my enemy. It tells me who I am. At the same time, this is the, the meal we need to regularly proclaim, boldly proclaim the gospel. This is the gospel. We, we, we publicly proclaim it over and over again. It's my significance. It's my hope. It's my victory. It's my joy. The body that was broken. And in the same way, the sustaining meal. We see it in the blood of Christ that makes me pure and makes me whole and washes me white as snow. It's an amazing thing. When we take communion, look at that and think, that visualizes my purity in Christ and oftentimes we don't feel very pure do we and with all of that we come to communion then with those attitudes of humility and gratitude we come with reverential worship and grateful introspection and we give